Welcome to Frankenwine, the show where two sisters tell science to get in, loser. We're going shopping over a few glasses of wine. I'm Emma. And I'm Katie. There are lots of frightening things happening in our world, and many that we pay a great deal of attention to. But what's the one problem that could stop new medicines being created, make chemotherapy too dangerous, and threaten all of our most important medical advances? This week, we're looking into the ticking time bomb that is antimicrobial or antibiotic resistance and discussing the steps that you need to be taking now. What would you say are the top three most urgent issues facing the future of humanity today? Okay, well, number one has obviously got to be climate change, right? Um, And then um, not a fan of Kardashians and possibly whoever is responsible for Trump's hair. All very important, but you forgot one. What? Antimicrobial resistance. I mean, I've basically heard of that, but I I didn't realise it was something we'd be putting in the top three. Yeah, well, I haven't quite decided if it is the most urgent issue facing humanity, but it's at least on a parallel with climate change. Seriously? Yeah, do you want some facts? Hit me. So 30% of all deaths in America were due to bacterial infections in the pre-antibiotic era. Okay, but that was before we had medical advancements. That was before antibiotics, yes. But are we now talking about life post-antibiotics? We are talking about the antibiotic apocalypse. Oh my god. So for those interested in the economic side of things, about 1.6 billion euros and about 20 million uh, 20 billion dollars is spent in excess healthcare costs associated with resistant infections in the US or the EU. Okay, that sounds quite bad. It doesn't sound top 3 bad. Really? Well, yeah, tell tell me a bit more. What are we actually talking about here? Okay, well, let's do a bit of history. Well, you do love your history lessons. I do, but maybe you can start this one, Emma. Do you know when antibiotics were first invented? Yeah, I went to school. This is Alexander Fleming and penicillin. Well, he didn't actually invent antibiotics. Actually, antibiotics have been used for millennia, but unwittingly. So apparently some people in ancient Egypt and ancient civilizations in Serbia and Greece and China used to put mouldy bread on infected wounds. How would that even work? Well, at the time, I think they said it was something to do with the gods, etc. But actually, it was quite likely that at least a little bit of the effectiveness was due to the presence of active metabolites that kill or halt the growth of bacteria present in the fungi in the mouldy bread. Much like the active metabolite that Alexander Fleming discovered as having antibacterial properties in 1928. On a pumpkin, right? No, not at all. It was definitely something to do with the pumpkin. It was nothing to do with the pumpkin. Fine. So it took centuries and centuries for us to actually understand that this was a chemical killing a bacteria. Yeah, so before we talk about what actually happened with Alexander Fleming, there are a few important discoveries that before this that kind of opened the window to Fleming's discovery being a big deal. Does that make sense? Yes. (laughs) So firstly, of course, crucially, bacteria were isolated and understood a bit more during the 1800s. Or actually, I should say, uh, they were first visualised by Anton van Leeuwenhoek in the 1600s, but it was only till the 1800s that they were actually kind of classified. Um, 
And by the end of that century, this idea of germ theory was popularised, basically saying that some diseases arise from an infection with microorganisms. So that was pretty crucial. But that seems pretty obvious right now, but it was probably a big deal at the time. Yeah, massive deal. So there was a guy called Robert Koch. Pronounced (laughs) Koch. Probably. (laughs) Who wrote a series of rules based on germ theory to test whether a quotation marks germ Mm. is the causative agent of a disease, which are called Cox postulates. That one is quite funny. (laughs) Hello, you have that. (laughs) So any biology or microbiology student will know about Cox postulates. I bet they will. (laughs) It sounds like an STI, doesn't it? (laughs) So much. Oh, it's got a case of Cox postulates. (laughs) Okay, but there was also another guy called Paul Ehrlich who popularised this theory of a magic bullet. So this was based on him looking at different microorganisms and realising that certain dyes bound to different organisms in different ways. Okay. So he was like, if I, if I take that dye and modify it slightly so that it has a drug attached to it, then I can kill specific types of bacteria. So this develop- he developed from this this idea of a magic bullet, so a really targeted therapy. And this was the first time of a therapy that was specific for the infection that you were trying to treat. So that's pretty important. Um, and he also developed um, a treatment, the first treatment, um, the first effective treatment for syphilis and is often called the father of chemotherapy. Didn't know, but where does our Alexander Fleming come in? Okay, so this guy was a messy chap. Um, and reportedly went away on holiday without properly tidying away some of his plates of Staphylococcus, which is a type of bacteria. Hmm. And when he came back, he noticed that a fungus, which was Penicillium notatum, had contaminated one of the Staphylococcus plates. So there was like a blob of mould on it. And actually, if you Google Alexander Fleming's initial culture plates, you can get a really, really cool picture of what he found that day. So there was a blob on a of- pumpkin. It wasn't a pumpkin. It was an agar plate. I don't know where you got pumpkin from. I'm going to Google it. Honestly, you won't find any mention of pumpkins on there. Carry on. So, <laughs> on this agar plate, um, he noticed this blob of mould, and then around the blob of mould, there was like a dead space where no bacteria could grow. So he figured that maybe there was something in this mould um, that was stopping the bacteria from growing. And he was correct. Hmm. Actually, nothing about pumpkins. Nothing about pumpkins. It was basically just him being lazy before going away on holiday. Yeah, I think so. Maybe it was around Halloween, I don't know. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway, so, ta-da, penicillin is born. Yeah, but of course it took a little bit longer as these sorts of things are quite hard to grow uh, on, like, a large scale. So, first of all, he had to isolate the chemical from that Mm mould, which he called penicillin because it came from the penicillium fungus. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, And there were two people, so that was in 1928, and then there were two people in Oxford, as a kind of Oxford-US collaboration, I think, that were really, really crucial in helping penicillin get into a mass-producible drug stage. Mm. So these people were Howard Florey and Ernst Chain. Lots of Germans in this. Yeah, Germans were big. Germanic names. Yeah, microbiology is really, really huge for uh, Germans. Mm. Anyway, Um, so they kind of did loads and loads of work on um, developing this drug and making it something easy to produce on a big scale and then by the end of the second world war so on d-day specifically Mm. people talk about um uh soldiers being treated with penicillin wow and penicillin had kind of been used on the battlefields to treat infected soldiers and became nicknamed the wonder drug that's incredible so it really saved a lot of lives yeah and still continues to do so for now eek i don't like the sound of that so enough history let's get down to the science 
Okay, so let's talk about how antibiotics actually work. So as we mentioned before, um, they were developed as this really specific treatment. Um, And they're specific for bacteria as they target features of a bacterial cell that are not present on or in human cells. Okay, so bacteria are what what are called prokaryotes. They have a really different structure to human cells. Okay. Um, And so antibiotics target a number of things within these bacterial cells that humans just don't have. Mm. So some of them include the machinery that bacteria use to make their proteins or their DNA. Okay. Which we do have, but in different forms. Right. Um, or by targeting the structures that build up the bacterial cells. So bacterial cells and prokaryotic cells in general, different from eukaryotes. Do you remember doing that at school, prokaryotes and eukaryotes? No, I really don't. Was that a GCSE level or A-level? I think it was GCSE, but maybe I'm wrong. Might have been A-level. I did not do science A-level. Yeah, right. Well, um, so prokaryotic cells like bacteria have like a really thick wall, or some of them have like a really thick wall, and that's kind of made up of different uh, sugars and proteins. So some antibiotics target um, some of the parts of the cell wall. Mm -hmm. So crucially, um, the beta-lactam group of antibiotics, which include penicillin, target um, several proteins that make up the cell wall. Okay. So then they, they treating these bacteria with the antibiotics stop them from being able to make their cell wall so they just don't they die okay it's like us without skin oh oh that's sorry that's a bit graphic (laughs) it is because i just watched an episode of chernobyl where everyone's without skin and yuck okay they die okay so that's basically how antibiotics work okay so as you hinted this wonder drug of penicillin is no longer going to be as wonderful why So, this is because of the development of resistance mechanisms. Mm. So, Emma, what do you think has caused antibiotic resistance? Um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I know you will, Mm -hmm. it's because bacteria have just evolved in the same way that humans evolve, and they've evolved to um, resist anything that we throw in their way. Yeah, interesting. So, um, bacteria are living things, so they do evolve, you're right. And there are resistance mechanisms that are naturally part of bacteria. Um, So this is kind of thought, we call it intrinsic resistance. So certain species might be resistant to something that another bacteria will produce so that they can not be killed by that competitive bacteria, you know? Okay. So there are species in in the Antarctic even that have resistance genes against a certain thing that another bacteria will produce. Right. So it's kind of like their mini immune system in a way. Okay. Scary. But this, the level of resistance we're seeing at the moment is no way natural. It is 100% man-made. Man-made? How? How has man-made that happen? So this has come from... Well, resistance in general has developed as a Darwinian evolutionary process um, from what we call selective pressure. Selective pressure. Yep. So this has come from a number of things. Firstly, the high volume of antibiotics prescribed. Okay, we were talking earlier about how when we were kids, Mm. I I just have this vague memory of the... um, banana flavoured penicillin coming yeah, out penicillin, yeah. quite often and I assume that was just every time we had a, a sore throat or whatever the doctor just said oh take this banana flavoured stuff yeah exactly um, and it's also true that um, as well as just doling out loads a mm. lot of clinicians certainly in previous years hopefully not as much now mm. would dole out the highest doses um, because you, you want the infection to be cleared so you, you pile on a load of antibiotics and hope to clear it all out 
Um, some other ones, so as well as you talked about inappropriate prescribing of antibiotics. So when mm. people go in with a cold, Emma, do you know why colds can't be treated with antibiotics? Now this was definitely in GCSE because it is a virus and not a bacteria. Correct. Yes. So when we talked earlier about how antibiotics work, they mm. target specific things that make up a bacteria and they're not going to be present on a virus. That's so stupid. It why did so a doctor stupid. ever do that? It's madness. Anyway. Um, <laughs> how to get Katie angry. <laughs> So there's also this other thing of incomplete treatment. So mm. were you ever told that you have to finish your course? Always. If I've ever had a course of antibiotics, it's they've made a really big point of saying you have to finish it. And so Good. I always have. Okay, so this this kind of pushes um, a really interesting kind of like microevolution on bacteria. So if you think about, I'm going to um, draw a graph and tweet this because okay. this is good to see in graphical form. But so imagine uh, you have an infection and you have loads and loads of bacteria. You go to the doctor they give you a drug and that um, the volume of bacteria decreased slightly. Yep. It's going down slightly. Yep. And then you say, oh, okay, that's brilliant. I, I don't have the infection anymore. I'm not going to take the rest of my antibiotics. Ah, uh, so you just self-diagnose yourself as cured. Yeah, but within as you've been taking those antibiotics, a very, very small number of bacteria have started to evolve so that they can resist being killed by these um, antibiotics. Oh my God, and that happens every single time anyone takes a course of antibiotics. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But the, the crucial point is that you've stopped taking these drugs and then there are just a, a few tiny, tiny species that could still be killed with those drugs, mm. but they've started to develop resistance. Okay. So as soon as you stop taking them, those bacteria that haven't yet been killed are going to start growing massively again. Oh. But you're going to get a massive... When those start growing massively, you'll start to have the infection again. Then you'll go back to the doctor oh say, gosh. hey, I've got this infection, can you give me more antibiotics, please? You'll take the antibiotics, but because the small number of bacteria that were growing initially have started to, to develop resistance, that antibiotic isn't going to work. Oh my god. So you push the infection, or you push the bacteria that are causing the infection, into like a rapid state of evolution so that they develop um, resistance against this. If you don't kill them all to begin with, then you're going to um, produce more that have resistance genes in them. I never understood why they say that, but now we've got to a point where... We're, we're at a we're at a crisis point is yes. that fair to say oh yeah we're at an absolute crisis point and it's because of people not completing their treatments yeah that's one of the reasons definitely Ooh. another really interesting thing to talk about is the use of antibiotics in farming mm. and aquaculture mm. so a really interesting thing after the 1940s when um antibiotics came into use and they started being used for farm animals it was noticed that a lot of these antibiotics would um stimulate growth in things like cows and chickens would, ah. and pigs would suddenly start growing loads. So doctors would just take... Sorry, not doctors. Farmers <laughs> were just treating their animals with loads of these antibiotics to help them grow more. But That's so screwy. Yeah. But of course, any treatment with an antibiotic is going to put this selective pressure on that bacteria. Yeah. And they didn't notice that... Well, I suppose they weren't using it to treat a bacteria in the first place, were they? So no, there was exactly. nothing to market against. Yeah, so um, this happened quite badly. And then, um, so a few really interesting things have happened on that. Um, in Denmark, they noticed that this was really bad. Mm. So I think around the 90s, um, so there's a guy in Denmark who, at the time, he was just finishing his PhD. So annoying that he managed to get all this done. Mm. He was just finishing his PhD and he went to a conference and he noticed that loads of people were talking about bacteria that they'd isolated from Danish pigs that, had, um, that showed resistance to a number of different antibiotics. Um, and this was really 
big issue because if they show resistance, then they're going to be resistant when they cause infection in humans. Does that make sense? Mm. Um, So Denmark set up this kind of surveillance program to stop people from treating um, their animals with antibiotics. Okay, Um, good. So they did a number of things. They so the EU actually banned treatment of um, animals with antibiotics to as a growth stimulant in 2006. Yes, I thought that was the case. It's possible that a lot of people still do it illegally. Illegally, and also it's big in other parts of the world, clearly, especially in, in the States. In the States, it's free, absolute free reign. Oh, it's a nightmare. That's horrendous. Um, but then also Denmark started issuing um, kind of, I think they had like a yellow card system. So if they it found that certain farmers were getting loads of antibiotics to treat infections, mm. actual infections, they say, okay, you need to chill out. And then this okay. reduced the number as well. Okay. So a lot of people thought that the, uh, the amount of pigs produced would go down but actually it went up and they reduced the use of antibiotics by like 60 percent which is amazing that's incredible so in the u.s still there's something like 300 milligrams of antibiotics to generate every kilogram of meat and eggs which is a lot and actually it's a lot worse than what humans get prescribed mm. we're, i mean that's got to be way worse surely yeah we're a lot better in healthcare than we um than we are in agriculture yeah But also it's important to mention that any even legitimate use of antibiotics is going to lead to an increased resistance. And there are are amazing things that we do these days, like surgical procedures that would not have ever been possible without having antibiotics. Uh, Okay, but I'm starting to get freaked out. And legitimate use of antibiotics, we're not telling anyone to not use their antibiotics. No, if you've got an infection, you need to take them. Okay, so what are these resistance mechanisms? Yeah, so we'll we'll talk about what people can do to stop resistance happening later on in the episode. But for now, let's just talk also about what these resistant mechanisms are. What what are they? What is a bacteria doing to become resistant? So resistant mechanisms come from genes, mm-hmm. as everything does. Yep. And these resistance genes are kind of natural. They happen. They're like the immune system. So bacteria can compete against each other. These resistance genes include things like uh, a bacterium could change the target of some of these drugs or they can develop pumps that will pump the antibiotics straight out of the cell yeah pumps yeah they're called efflux pumps so i think uh, the bacterium that causes tuberculosis generates <gasps> efflux pumps oh my god so the um, antibiotic will go into the bacterial cell mm. and the bacteria will just chuck it straight out I'm I'm just getting more and more on edge. Oh wait, the it more gets you oh. get so much worse. Oh my god! Um, and then, so importantly, going back to um, the example of penicillin. Mm-hmm. Um, so bacteria can also produce enzymes that stop these drugs from working. Okay, so what are some examples of those? Okay, well, penicillin is an example of a beta-lactam antibiotic. And it's called this because the beta-lactam ring is a really important part of the chemical within the antibiotic. And that's important because it mimics the shape of one of the things that makes up the bacterial cell wall. Okay? Okay. Does that make any sense? Yeah. So the first beta-lactam antibiotic to be introduced in the clinic was penicillin G. So that was the one that Alexander Fleming and Howard Florin, Howard Florey and Ernst Chain developed. Yeah. Um, and that was released in the 1940s. And then by 1944, reports of penicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus began to emerge. Okay, so actually antibiotic resistance is nothing new. Well, no, but it was definitely... Like, Staph aureus would not have become resistant to penicillin on its own. No. Um, So, and this was due to the production of something called beta-lactamases, which are these enzymes that break down that beta-lactam part of the chemical structure of antibiotics. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. 
Um, what about MRSA? Is that another example? Because you hear about that a lot. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, so um, we often call bacterial infections that are resistant to a number of antibiotics superbugs. Ah, yes. Yep, and MRSA is a classic example of a superbug. Yeah. So MRSA stands for methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Whew. I love that. I remember learning that at uni and being like, I'm going to practice this. <laughs> methicillin. <laughs> say it later on a podcast that I will co-host with my Who sister. Who and actually, so I actually have Staphylococcus aureus on my skin, and about a third of people... What? How? Oh, we, do people just generally yeah, have it? about a third of people just generally have Staph aureus. Um, How do you know that? I know that because when I was a kid, I got these massive boils oh, yeah, yeah. that are Staph aureus infections. Lovely. Um, and I think, yeah, I did a project later on at uni as well, and they tested people for Staph aureus. Anyway, so... One of the things that I'm really cautious of is that I need to be really careful washing my hands when I go into the hospital at work because I don't want to give anyone MRSA. Oh my gosh, okay. Mm. And Anyway, um, okay, so MRSA became resistant to methicillin and a number, which is um, a kind of penicillin derivative. So yeah, it's like, sounds like it. Yeah, and there are a number of other ones that it's resistant to as well. And this um, happened from the Staphylococcus aureus, that particular strain, mm. generating a gene called the MEK-A gene. Which okay. produces a different kind of protein that um, the penicillin derivatives, those beta-lactam antibiotics, usually bind to to have their effect. Okay. So this is an example of a bacteria uh, changing the target of that antibiotic to become resistant. So if you're, if you're at uni studying any of this, um, if you're doing any kind of biological or clinical degree, that will come up. So remember MEK-A and MRSA. <laughs> okay, but where did this MEK-A thing come from? So what's particularly interesting, and this brings us on to the next topic of conversation, is that this MEK-A gene probably came from a different species of Staph aureus or a different strain. How? So, bacteria sex. No, bacteria don't have sex. So kind of. It's a thing that we call horizontal gene transfer. AKA sex. How erotic. Although that's not what happens in humans. We actually have a vertical gene transfer. Oh, let's not even... Okay, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> but it's what bacteria use to pass on genetic material to each other. The main mode of this is called conjugation. Of course. Sexy. <laughs> and it involves a little bacterial phallus-shaped no, extension called a pelus. doesn't. <laughs> and, the, and the pili, or the pelus, inserts itself into the recipient bacterium and injects what are called mobile genetic elements. So any students will know about the plasmids and the transposons, but we're not going to go into that. <laughs> um, so these mobile genetic elements that get transferred have these resistance genes in them. Yeah, this can happen across species and um, even between different organisms. Like apparently it's happened with fungi as well, which is crazy. Like it's like animal species can't interbreed with mm. other species, mm. but bacteria can through this horizontal gene transfer. That's absolutely horrible. It sounds kind of alien and disgusting and I'm, I'm thoroughly freaked out. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've learned quite a few things here. We've learned how, how and what antimicrobial resistance is. Give me, in a nutshell, the effects of this and how soon are we talking? Ooh, that is the million dollar question. Um, okay, so there are some bacterial infections that are really serious these days that we don't talk about lots that are starting to increasingly develop resistance. Uh, tuberculosis. Okay, frightening. That, that's one of them that still kills a lot of people in the third world. Does it world. really? It really in the third does. world. 
Okay, so that's going to be an issue. Yeah, because it's getting to the stage where it's resistant to a number of antibiotics. So people might get it in the UK. Oh my God. And okay. won't be treatable anymore. Okay, so that's one. STIs and STDs. Eek. Did you hear about the superbug gonorrhea last year or the year before maybe? Um, it rings a bell about it becoming a superbug, yeah. Yeah, so this, this was a strain of gonorrhea that had developed resistance against a number of um, the antibiotics that are usually treated. So usually used to treat it. So you can't treat gonorrhea anymore? You can, but it's really difficult. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but gonorrhea sounds like something that, you know, Byron had. Yeah, and it's really interesting because we're going, we're kind of reversing into this era where people died of these really common True. Yeah, transmitted yeah, yeah, yeah. infections. Yeah, people died of syphilis all the time, didn't oh, they? Oh yeah, yeah, so syphilis might be another one that's coming back. Okay, so, so we've got tuberculosis and we've got STIs, STDs. Mm-hmm. What else? So other really crucial things to mention, a lot of... A lot of infections um, that could kill us don't because we, we usually have a competent immune system that can deal with it and clear the infection. Yeah. However, for those pe- people who don't have a competent immune system, and here I'm talking about HIV patients, mm-hmm. uh, cancer patients, mm-hmm. um, and cystic fibrosis patients who we've talked about before, mm. um, they don't clear infections very well. Bacteria tend to colonise really easily in their airways, for example. Yeah. So something like um, a sore throat which is often caused by streptococcus bacteria. Sometimes yep. when you get strep throat, you remember? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that can become really, really lethal, especially for those patients who are more susceptible. Pneumonia already kills a lot of older people. Yes, it does. Because they don't have the um, competent immune systems to tackle it. Okay, I'm starting to understand why you've put this in the top three. Mm. Give me a bit of a timescale. We know that for climate change, um, experts are saying, you know, we've got maybe 10 years to reverse some of the effects of climate change and slow things down. Mm. Antimicrobial resistance, what's your prediction? So someone in the industry told me about two years ago that we had 10 years left. Okay, <laughs> so we've got about eight years to go. Yeah, and it's difficult because it's it's happening at different rates for different bacteria. And presumably at different rates across the world so here it sounds as though we're actually possibly slightly better positioned to deal with this whereas certainly in the third world this could become much more of a problem much more quickly absolutely so in the past we've seen things like aids be a real problem for people in africa yeah and in the future it's going to be amr as antimicrobial resistant infections wow being the biggest issue i think i saw somewhere that um at the peak of the the AIDS crisis in Africa, there was something like 1.5 million deaths from AIDS. Mm. And it's predicted that in 2050, there'll be about 4 million deaths from um, antimicrobial resistance Eesh. infections. Um, and is that because antibiotics have been prescribed more readily in, in Africa, in the third world? N- no, not exactly. So um, we've actually done a lot of prescribing of antibiotics in the first world country, the developed countries mm. that have generated resistant bacteria. But then those bacteria pass to other parts of the world where they don't have the healthcare infrastructure to right. deal with the transmission of infections. So it's basically spread around much more easily in the third world. Exactly, but it okay. is our fault for okay. generating those resistant bacteria in the first place. And it's our fault for not finishing our courses of antibiotics and yeah. all of these sorts of things. Okay, so, um, well, you've done it. I am absolutely terrified. And now I know I've got about eight years. Um, <laughs> I don't quote me on that, though, because I could be wrong, because that was just kind of inter-industry gossip. <laughs> and also, it's, it's presumably almost impossible to predict yeah it is very difficult and we are making strides so we have reduced the amount of uh, antibiotics being prescribed in the past and okay. we've also there's this thing called a uh, broad spectrum antibiotics which mm. is used um to treat 
patients, particularly uh, in the clinic and hospitals, who might have a range of um, bacterial infections. So they just given get given this, um, which is in called empirical therapy for those students out there who might want to know. <laughs> um, but we're kind of getting better at figuring out exactly what bacteria is that's causing a, a disease and then focusing on what's called a narrow spectrum. So an antibiotic that will only kill that bacteria. Okay, that sounds positive. Yeah. Let's focus on the positives. Let's find out A, what is science doing about this? And B, what can our listeners do about this? Emma, do you want to know what you can do about this? I absolutely want to know what I can do about this and I want to start doing it now. <laughs> okay, so the World Health Organization, who we... we quote quite a lot don't yeah we? we do we're big fans yeah um, they have a list of things that individuals can do okay these include only using antibiotics when prescribed by a healthcare professional okay and not being afraid of using them when you're told to yeah i mean do use them when you're told to but also remember that there are bacterial infections that can go away on their own okay like utis for example if you have a urine infection instead of going to the doctor to get antibiotics maybe just drink a pint of cranberry juice mm. Anyway, nasty. Um, and also follow the healthcare workers' advice. So that's finishing uh, courses. Always finish the course, people. <laughs> um, and okay, so you can also prevent infections. That's really crucial. Mm. So I talked about washing my hands going into the hospital. Yes. Yeah. Um, so prefer- preparing food hygienically. So there's uh, salmonella. Is mm. uh, all infections like salmonella I think are caused also by E. coli I mean I've just had in the last year I've had two serious bouts of food poisoning that was probably E. coli and E. coli is becoming resistant to bacteria by the way Uh, sorry antibiotics well I I didn't have antibiotics in either case but yeah it's absolutely miserable when you get something like that yeah but it's crazy for the people in hospitals who are getting food poisoning Mm. and have like severely weakened immune systems or just poor health okay that's that's really really frightening who get treated with Oh, my friend actually got food poisoning when she was going into labour and they gave her tons of antibiotics to oh. stop her, like, her and her baby being really, really unwell. And she, mm. she had to get... Anyway. Did anyway. Get what? Well, she had to get induced and had her little baby early because she got food poisoning. But she, if she hadn't have, had the antibiotics, like, mm. it would have been a really bad situation. Okay. Frightening. Okay. Anyway. Uh, so washing hands and preparing food hygienically. And if all the restaurants that I visit could also do that, that would be really helpful. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, and also avoiding contact with ill people. It's probably a good thing. Mm. But also, you know, putting on a condom and stopping spread of STIs. It's also a good thing. Come on, people. If you're going on These are the basics. (laughs) I think that superbug of gonorrhea happened when someone went on a lad's trip. Oh, for God's sake. Just wrap it up. Come on. Don't be silly. Wrap is willy. (laughs) Also, don't get antibiotics for a cold. It's not going to work. And also, who does that? A lot of people still do it. But seriously, no doctor is going to prescribe antibiotics for a cold. Some do. Because some people some people will go and demand them. Ah, so never demand antibiotics from a healthcare <laughs> professional. Because you don't know what they're talk- you're talking about a lot um, of the time. Yeah. Also, if you're a clinician and you can you have the power to prescribe, don't prescribe antibiotics for... Like, I have a friend who prescribes herself antibiotics for, like, the slightest sniffle, even though she knows they're not going to work. Anyway... I should probably not name and shame. Listen to us just <laughs> lecturing healthcare professionals. Oh, and also a crucial one that we haven't talked about. Vaccinate. Ah, uh, okay. This is a seriously controversial area. Well, it's not. I don't understand why. So there's a massive anti-vaxxing movement that we're mm. going to have to talk about in another in another podcast. Yeah. Um, 
But vaccination is a way to stop yourself getting infections. Yeah, it does seem crazy to me. Yeah, I remember before going to Africa, I had a cholera drink. Did you have that? I didn't actually. I remember having to drink. That was because there isn't like, or there wasn't at the time, like a proper um, vaccination. I never had that. You had to drink it. But cholera is a bacterial infection. So Mm. things like typhoid bacterial infection, I remember getting the thing for that. And what about hepatitis? Uh, I think that's a virus actually. Ah, okay. But still important. Still important. And also just vaccinating your babies. I mean, we were both vaccinated, but then I seem to remember with our brother, who was born in 1995, there was much more of a movement then as well against vaccinations. So we'll talk about this in another episode, but that was from a doctor called Andrew Wakefield who uh, released some really, really dodgy data suggesting that the MMR vaccine could uh, cause autism. Autism, that's it. Which is absolutely bogus. Okay, so that's us. What about... And policymakers, governments. So there's a woman called Dame Sally Davis, who's the chief medical officer for the UK, that is England. A big, big job. Yes, yeah, serious job, but she's really, really passionate about stopping antimicrobial resistance. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so she's helped a lot of people who make policies on this mm. um, tackle resistance and, you know, improve surveillance of antibiotic resistant infections. It's really important to keep an eye on which bacteria are developing resistance. And hopefully she's guiding the government in that in that case. Exactly. Strengthening policies, programmes, all of that stuff she's been really heavily involved in. So Fantastic. thank you, Dame Sally. Well done, Dame Sally. Agriculture. So Oh, don't get me started on this one. <laughs> I've I've read so much about um the meat industry generally. Yeah. Coronated chickens. Whoa. Yeah, so I don't know <laughs> why. <laughs> I don't know about that in terms of antibiotic resistance, but the US is is quite bad yeah. for for treating as we've talked about their animals with antibiotics. Yeah. And we don't we don't want any of that, please. No. <laughs> I mean it's just so completely unnecessary. Obviously the reason you know that that farmers do this in factory farming is is in order to satisfy the appetite that that is out there for eating meat yeah. and and in order to do it quickly and at scale. Um, but we just need to rethink the way that we eat. When you've got something that is this critical to our planet, to our lives, to our children's lives, and could threaten us within the next eight years, it, it's crazy to me that people don't rethink the way that they want to eat. Yeah, I know. And this is particularly the case with battery farming. Mm. So if we can push more towards free range, then things like like chickens are me- less likely to get infections if they're mm. free range mm. than if they're shoved in one place. And I mean, there is a slight other side of the argument from my reading, um, which is quite wide, but you never know how truthful these things are. But mm. um, you do hear a lot about in factory farms, um, you know, chickens, will, they're in such a small place that they will peck each other and they will cause um, wounds, etc. that could actually be infected. So okay. there is some, you know, there is some need for antibiotics for any factory farmed chicken, surely. Yeah. So if we move I away mean, from factory farming, then all will be solved. Well, yeah. <laughs> Or just stop eating it. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't think that they can... You know, that thing back... uh, Talking about horizontal gene transfer. Bacteria... Bacteria sex. Yeah. Um, The bacteria that exist inside meat can Mm, then live mm. inside us. And going vegan (laughs) isn't isn't the answer necessarily because obviously you'll have bacteria on your food. I mean, sorry, on your your vegetables. Yeah, yeah. It's just more about reducing antibiotic consumption as much as possible. Yeah. I want to know what science is doing about this. Yeah, okay. So, you know what? Actually, I couldn't find as much as I thought. I know there are loads of people working on this and there's something that I've been following since my uni days uh, called the Longitude Prize, which um, is a big funding body giving out uh, money to people who can fix the AMR problem. Okay. Do you know what I mean when I say AMR? Have I introduced Antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, okay, cool. 
So I found a paper the other day that was talking about using chemicals from snake venom. Ooh. So like for some reason, um, snake venom has some really strong antibacterial properties. Okay. So people are looking into kind of isolating these chemicals and maybe modifying sl- them slightly so that they can produce them as drugs. I think I saw this on the news, actually. Did you? And also copper is supposed to be anti Yeah, that's material. Like, I mean, there are things that we could be using and resourcefully. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of things also with um, in terms of repurposing existing drugs yeah. to make them antibacterial. Okay. Which is quite interesting. So that, well, that maybe sounds a little bit boring, just kind of rejigging old drugs, but that is... Sounds necessary. Yeah. And it's something we've been doing a lot with antibiotics and there mm. are sort of like fifth generations of one drug that we've just changed slightly to get it more effective. Yeah. Um, but so it's still a really crucial tool. Yeah. But then more excitingly is phage therapy. Phage so what does phage stand for? Have you ever heard of bacteriophages? Yes. Have you? Yes. I have no idea what they are, though. Okay, so bacteriophage are viruses that kill bacteria. Okay. Viruses that kill bacteria. Interesting. Yeah. I love them. I find them so fascinating. <laughs> so viruses, I don't know if we've mentioned before, are... So as I was talking about earlier, you know how we have the prokaryotes, which are bacteria. Yes. Eukaryotes, which are us. Yeah. And those are generally considered the two main forms of life. Yeah. However, viruses are akaryotes. They don't fit into either category. They're just a shell. They're just a particle. They need host machinery to reproduce. Yes. Um, But there is a type of virus that specifically uses bacteria as its host. Okay. So there's... um, People are looking into repurposing these bacteriophage um, to, or phage for short, mm. um, to kill specific types of bacteria. Mm. So there's one, I saw a Guardian article, and there was a, a young woman who um, had a, a, an infection after some kind of routine surgery that wasn't being treated by bacteria. So someone came in and said, okay, look, we've got this phage therapy. Um, and she survived. Because it wasn't of, being treated by a tea. Uh, yeah sorry sorry antibiotics not bacteria Mm. so that infection just wasn't clearing Mm. um and then they took these bacteriophage and she survived and it worked are people trying to create new antibiotics yeah so that's the thing like there was after the first antibiotic was developed so penicillin Mm. and penicillin g in the 1940s um there was what's called a golden age of discovery for antibiotics. Okay. So pretty much most of the antibiotics that we use these days were developed within the first 30, 20 years after the first antibiotic. And then since then, no new classes have been developed. Seriously? Yeah. That's also scary Mm. because obviously we're just running out of resources and and they're, they're becoming resistant. Yeah. So bizarrely, even though we know this is such a big situation... Drugs are really, really hard to develop de novo from Mm. nothing. Mm. So the antibiotics that we do have, as I've talked about, were chemicals that we isolated from other things like fungi. Mm. Uh, Penicillin came from a fungus. It was a natural thing. And lots and lots of other types of antibiotics came from other types of bacteria that had that um, mechanism within them naturally. Yeah. People do what's called screening, where they take loads and loads of compounds from loads of different sources and um, try and see if they're going to have an effect. And some of them are useful, but drug discovery is a really, really hard area. So I'd love to say that people were being really successful developing new chemicals, but I don't think it's going to be that easy. So the things that we do, that those list, that list of things from the WHO that we just discussed... The WHO. Uh, sorry, the... 
WHO, um, not the band The Who. Um, they, they don't know what they're talking about. Um, th- those are the things that are going to make a difference here. Yeah, that's that's crucial because research absolutely is happening and will help. Yeah, snake venom, etc. Yeah, but without our inputs, it's we've got no hope. Yeah, of getting there in time. Wow. So um, it's really important that we spread this message then to mm. do those things. Yeah. It's also important to say that. Um, just a point about antiseptics. Mm. So, I mean, they still work against infections. So, like, if someone cuts their knee, you can still put pseudocrome on it and it'll still be and okay. And that will still be okay. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's sort of encouraging. Yeah. Um, this episode has um, probably been the scariest that we've done. And I'm in quite a vulnerable place right now because Aww. I just watched Chernobyl and yeah. I'm really, really scared about radiation. This is your one-week warning, by the way, everybody, because we're going to be talking about radiation in Chernobyl in our next episode. I'd highly recommend watching the HBO miniseries. <laughs> this episode has really, really scared me. Mm. Can you... So I've got I've got some practical things that I can do now and I'm absolutely going to do those. Can you give me something to cheer me up a little bit about all of this? I mean, I suppose it would be very difficult to cheer somebody up about climate change as well, mm. unless they stopped flying and didn't have children and became vegan, which are apparently the top three things that you should do. Yeah. Um, they're just not realistic, are they? All I can say is that research is happening. And mm. if you can find a way of supporting research... That's a really good thing to do as well. Oh, that's really interesting. Supporting research, you mean financially? Yeah, which I'm always a massive advocate of. But the thing is, the research... So research going into bacteriophage therapy, which is really exciting. Yeah. It's probably... Sorry to to press again, but it's probably (laughs) still not going to be the 100% answer because bacteria are still going to evolve against it. Okay. Eventually. So it's like a short-term solution? Kind of. Like, it's very promising and it will do a lot of good when it gets to the stage where we can use it in the clinic. Yeah. But it's still not the answer. Okay. Why was I talking about that being... Okay, yeah. (laughs) So, but for this to be the answer at the time that we need it, the research needs to be funded. So how does somebody go about finding research to fund? How can you fund it? Is it on just giving? I mean, how, how do you do these things? So I would actually lobby your local politician. Oh, okay. And remind them of how important this topic is because Mm. they can take that to government and make sure that that something's going on within policy that's a really important way okay and also because a lot of this needs to be funded through government sources Mm. um but also look up charities or Mm. organizations like i mentioned the long longitude prize okay i think that's probably looking for donations okay and there are other charities probably that will fund uh this sort of research do you know what i do feel more positive i'm genuinely going to late lobby my politician yeah that's a really good um, idea my sorry my mp i mean <laughs> my own good idea <laughs> no, that, <laughs> that's a really good idea. but that actually makes me feel like i have some sort of control on this because yes i'm going to do all the things that who recommend yeah and all the things you said but it's it does it can yeah it feels a little bit hopeless but we we, we can try we've got to do something right and the thing is research is the answer i talk about mm. that in every episode but yeah. for this especially research is the answer. I also think, I agree with research being the answer, but I think spreading the message as well is really important because I can guarantee that my fiancé doesn't know about this stuff. Mm. I bet our parents don't really know about this stuff. And yet it's as serious a threat as climate change. Something something doesn't add up there. Why is there not more of a message about this? (sighs) (laughs) Okay, well, we're doing something here. So if, if you guys have enjoyed listening to this episode, please talk to your friends, maybe even get them to listen to it as well Hmm. if you think that they would enjoy it. But certainly start the conversation. Let's talk more about this and what we should be doing because clearly we need to be doing something. And now it's time for some light refreshment. 
Okay, so today for an experiment, I thought we'd try a non-alcoholic wine. Mm. Non-alcoholic beer is something I have at home every now and then, just to fill a gap, I suppose. Um, and so I thought non-alcoholic wine would be worth, worth a try. So I typed in non-alcoholic wine into Ocado. <laughs> and the first thing I came, that came up was this bottle, but... <laughs> Emily sounds so depressed. <laughs> I feel like it's quite obvious we've not had alcoholic wine this time. The first thing that came up was this bottle of zero alcohol Echo Falls wine. Okay, so Echo Falls is a standard brand, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, I tweeted about them and they liked the tweet. Nice. And I thought, okay, friendly, nice. I don't think you can call this anything like wine. (laughs) So, but maybe it's not trying to be. So it just says... Echo Falls Zero Alcohol Sparkling Infusion. And it's blended, apparently, with natural green tea extracts for a refreshing drink. So I don't actually think it's trying to be wine. I didn't realise that. Well, it is trying to be wine because it's got the bottle Mm. and it has, like, a popper that you have to take off, like, a champagne bottle. Which gave me confidence. Yeah. And it's even got the dent in the bottom of the bottle. It's got the dent in the bottom of the bottle, which is just (laughs) unbelievable. It describes itself as elegant and refreshing, but it doesn't say wine anywhere. It really doesn't. Well, I guess it's not wine, is it? It's not wine. It's fermented. It's not wine. And I didn't realise... I have to say, I had no idea how disappointing (laughs) non-alcoholic wine was going to be. I feel like I'm drinking schlur (laughs) at best and slightly fizzy apple juice at worst. A bit like appetiser. It really tastes like appetiser, which is lovely, but I'm far too old to drink appetiser. Okay, counter-argument. Go on. Say you're at a nice summer barbecue Mm. and you're pregnant or you don't drink Mm. or you're on antibiotics. Mm. Don't you think it'd be quite nice to take a chilled bottle of this sparkling-esque drink (laughs) and pretend like it's wine and give yourself the nice refreshing feeling that a bottle of sparkling something can give you? Yeah, I I can see that. I hadn't even kept this in the fridge, so perhaps it would be better if refrigerated. And there is something nice about being able to pop the top off and it does make a very, you know, reassuring sound. It feels like you're opening a bottle of Prosecco. It's hilarious how annoyed you are at this. I'm sorry. sorry. (laughs) I really just feel betrayed. Betrayed. I do. I do. Do you feel like we're betraying wine by drinking this? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I can't wait till next week's wine, which Mm. promises to be very good indeed. Oh, that's good. That's Mm. good. So how much was this? Okay. Well, this is, I should have known. It, guess. Uh, like four pounds? Less. Three pounds? Less. Two pounds. Two pounds and 96 pence. Mm. And that was a saving, I think, of 53 pence via Ocado.com. But still, it's um, unsettling. And we did look at Schlur to see how much Schlur would cost, because it really does just taste like Schlur. It does taste a lot like Schlur. And it, it was a few pence more maybe 60p more for the same amount what schler was more schler, expensive schler no sorry this was more expensive than schler yeah. and actually to be fair you probably would pay the extra 60p for the popping noise yeah just to have the just experience to have that. of the alcohol yeah at a barbecue if you weren't drinking for whatever reason mm. but I, I i don't think i can talk about it anymore well, I personally do think it's quite a good alternative for those who don't drink or who, who aren't drinking or can't drink. But you may as well drink juice. It tastes like juice. Yeah, but it does feel quite grown up. You know, like when... We're drinking it, by the way, out of keep cups. All right, OK. I don't have wine glasses or champagne flutes on hand all the time. At the lab. I'm doing my best. 
Anyway, so I think it's quite a good alternative. It does taste like Schleer, but I like having the experience of the bottle with the popper and the yeah, sparkling yeah. noises. Okay. Well, I suppose, you know, if you're not drinking and you spend £3, it, it's, it could be worse. I do fear that there's a very high sugar content. Oh, that's true. But then wine has quite high sugar content anyway. True. It? I mean, this is liquid calories without any alcohol. zero out of ten for me zero out of ten no 2.96 which is instantly how much it costs (laughs) okay well i mean i can't really i don't really feel like maybe we shouldn't grade it on the same scale as normal wine Mm. for for a juicy type thing (laughs) i'd give it like seven a refreshing drink yeah but for wine i would probably give it like one yeah it's definitely one for the bottle that's why the bottle yeah that's what i was thinking yeah so there you have it. That was our experiment. Zero alcohol. I don't think we'll do it again. <laughs> no, maybe not. So there you have it. Antimicrobial resistance is probably one of the top things threatening us over the next few decades. But hopefully through this episode, we've maybe scared you a little bit, but also given you somewhat of a toolkit in order to start tackling some of this stuff yourself. If you have any resources, any questions you'd like to ask us, any thoughts you'd like to share, please do get in touch. We love getting emails from you at frankinwinepod at gmail.com. And also, even better, send us a tweet and we'll retweet you if, we, if you give us something that we think our audience would like to see as well. So that's at frankinwinepod. Thanks for listening and we'll catch up with you next time. You've been listening to Frankenwine. This episode was written, presented and produced by Katie Begg and Emma Begg.